0: Welcome to the video podcast, Richard Gage, 9-11 Unleashed, where truth and unity matter. Take the deep dive with highly influential voices in and around the 9-11 truth movement.
1: Welcome, everybody, back to Richard Gage, 9-11 Unleashed. Great to be back and great to be with you live. And we have an incredible guest today, Jeremy Reese, 9-11 researcher extraordinaire. Jeremy's going to be talking about 9-11 inside out. So I'm very excited about it. First, I want to introduce you to my wonderful wife and assistant, Ms. Gail Gage. Hello, Gail.
0: Hello, Richard.
1: Gail and is everybody. an integral part of the operation here at Richard gauge 911 Unleashed. And Gail, did you know we're unleashed?
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> what does
1: that mean to you?
0: It means that we're free.
1: <laughs> you
0: are free to share whatever is on your heart to share.
1: Yeah, and we are and research. We're, yeah, we're out of our nest. The nest I created 15 years ago at Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, we had a very narrow scope, very necessarily narrow scope. And I have been growing out of that narrow scope. And um now I am uh <laughs> unleashed. We're extending beyond the 9-11 Truth movement, even. Not, not only beyond the World Trade Center Towers, but beyond the uh 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 the 9-11 truth movement itself in order to connect dots in fact gail tell people about the conferences we've been invited to come speak at this month
0: oh my gosh this is so exciting so coming up may 13th through the 15th which is not this weekend but the next weekend the dcg mastermind event it's a crypto conference in san diego And then two weeks after that, which is the last weekend in May, Memorial Weekend, we're going to be going down to San Antonio, Texas for the Advanced Medicine Conference. Uh, There's going to be over a thousand doctors there. Um, It's really a case study in bringing 9-11 truth into the medical professional world.
1: And in the alternative medical professional world, yes. that is in particular, yes, is. because they're speaking up uh, about, you know what, the disease that's going around and the false solutions that have been <laughs> presented <laughs> Don't say uh, to it. us. <laughs> Don't say it. We uh, already got a couple of strikes for saying just the word. I mean, yeah. it's bad. Uh, YouTube censorship is over the top. Mm -hmm. so we're trying to be careful we've got a second youtube channel for those of you who don't know it's called richard gage 9-11 again so you can uh find us uh there uh and for a little while longer you you can find us at our original youtube channel richard gage 9-11 uh where we are streaming right now through uh, by the the grace of god uh until we get our third strike and then uh then that'll be gone. And we go to our next YouTube <laughs> channel. Maybe we'll make a third one if we have three strikes on, on the oh, other one. Anyway, what else is coming crazy. up? Jill?
0: Well, we're working on our next virtual conference, nine 11 con Shanksville. It's going to be Saturday, July 16th. So that's coming up actually coming up a lot faster than we think it is. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be right there very soon. So we have got a lot of work to do.
1: Following on the heels of 9-11 con that you see in your lower screen there, uh, the Pentagon, where we invited experts uh, on the subject of the Pentagon. And we're looking for experts currently. If you know of any who have done work, we're assembling our team now for the July 16th, 9-11 con on Shanksville. Anything else?
0: Yes well you just had a couple of great podcasts one was john perkins he's the author of the new york times bestseller new confessions of an economic economic and yes it was and then most recently we had aiden monahan on yesterday he presented evidence of the remote control of the four hijacked planes on 9-11
1: yeah it, it was pretty incredible um I, I think he looked at three of them. He's got. Uh, he has yet to do work, I think, on uh, 93. But it was more general in that he he exposed that this technology was available well before 9/11 and installed on the planes, uh, and people don't know this. It, it, it was really quite incredible. So the capability was there, and the probability <laughs> also was there, as he pointed out.
0: Yes, and then we have Tom Scott Gordon coming up next. So. Tom Scott yes. Gordon
1: was an architecture, still is still an architectural photographer, but well before 9-11, he exposed plans for renovations relative to galvanic corrosion correction. They were going to replace all the connections between the aluminum panels and the steel reinforcing. And that brought up a lot, put him in the center of a lot of things. We're, we're going to be looking forward to talking to him about that. And those series of very interesting encounters he had in the towers.
0: Yes. Yes. And then other than that, we've got our webinars going on. 9-11 and Architect's Guide. We had part one yesterday. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, the World Trade Center Building 7. And then next week, we have part two, which is the World Trade Center Twin Towers Explosive Destruction.
1: And then part three.
0: Yes, and part three, but the the time has changed. Um, We are now doing them at 6 p.m. Pacific time. So those of you who are at work can hopefully catch us a little easier and and be be able to participate more and ask questions.
1: And they're all archived on our website. And what's our website, Gail?
0: (laughs) RichardGage911.org.
1: Yep. You can find a lot of great stuff there, including all the evidence that we're going to be touching, what we are touching on, have touched on in our webinars. And some of the stuff that we're gonna be touching on, some of the edgy stuff that our guest today is going to be touching on. Speaking of our guest, Gail, how will people be able to ask questions of our guest?
0: On all the platforms you guys are watching from, under the video is a comment section. So put your, your question in there along with your comments and I will copy and paste them over to our private chat and I'll ask our guests the questions there at the end.
1: Well, how cool is that? And um, speaking uh, of this wonderful guest, 9-11 Inside Out Crime Scene Proximity Investigations with 9-11 researcher Jeremy Reese. What's the evidence at the crime scene that suggests a crime other than the, the act of war that the official narrative has presented? Jeremy will review some of that evidence first, but then he's going to get into who was really in control of security at the World Trade Center. What was the role of Kroll Associates and Jerome Howard in the 9-11 event? What really happened to John O'Neill? and Who was John O'Neill? And why did he have to die? What are the deeper connections of Mayor Giuliani that might shed light on 9-11? Who was really in control of security at the airports of origin of these hijacked flights? Where did the investigation of the 9 11 insider trading lead? What is the connection between the 9 11 event and the laundered drug money by the big banks? Why were the only fireproofing upgrades at the Twin Towers at and near? The floors that were hit by the airplanes? What was the secret role of J. Paul Bremer at Martian McLennan and in Iraq following 9 11? And what very interesting product development was he involved with that might have led to the destruction of the Twin Towers? What are the implications of the elevator modernization by Ace Elevator at the Twin Towers? the nine months prior to 9-11. Jeremy Reese is my guest on Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed today. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in physics from Bridgewater State University. He's been investigating 9-11 and related events ever since 2004, two years ahead of my awareness of these incredible events. He's also been a major contributor to the scientific debunking literature and videos, including his work with engineer Jonathan Cole on the 9-11 Experiments, a series that's available at 911speakout.org. He is also appreciated in the foreword of Kevin Ryan's book, Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Nine Eleven Suspects. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a hearty welcome to Mr. Jeremy Reese. Jeremy, hello. Hey Richard. How
2: are hey, you? Hey Jeremy. Great to see you. Hi,
1: Gail.
0: Hello. You doing so well? No
2: audio problems today. Uh, that you had yesterday. I heard you heard you were having some serious issues with Aiden. Yeah, when you're getting started, Aiden's always a, a good guest.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, he was, he was awesome. We edited out those issues and uh, reinstalled that for everybody's knowledge. Uh, uh, a good listening uh, and watching uh, video and audio for that. But Jeremy, let me start out by asking you, uh, how is it that you beat me to the punch and learned about the truth about 9-11 in 2004? And how did that happen?
2: I don't know. Um my got I got a DVD. I got a bunch of these um CDs actually. It was a it was a friend of mine that I later met and and, and became good friends with who had he he had gone through an initiative um at, in in all the colleges in Boston and he was going around and just put handing out these DVDs and and leaving stacks of them near 7-11s and and all these places where you just random people would grab them and stuff. Uh, you know like free movie free movie free movie you know and and they had like this tower stack at this guy's house that had like uh ten DVD burners in it and, and you could just like sit there and, and burn like ten of them at a time and, and they would just sit there and pump out DVDs and throw labels on them and and, and just leave them around for people and um that ended up being the Boston 9 eleven truth movement later we, we we turned into that and um but it um it it was my friend Matt that had was making these uh, these these DVDs and the in these CDs that I, I happened upon one, and um, I was like, "No way," you know. Um, but I'll, I'll get into how how my some of my investigations into that have gone, and uh, and talk a little bit about that um, as we go. Um, but yeah, that's how I got into it. So I want to remind people the power of uh, that, that you know, grassroots effort to reach out. And, and you know, there's plenty of good movies out there that you could throw on DVDs and, and leave around to these colleges and universities that, to start some conversations.
1: Yeah, and I'm just uh, curious, may- maybe you and Gail have a, an idea for us about now that i've heard several times hey, i don't have a dvd player <laughs> anymore it's like have we gone past that point and what's the best uh next guerrilla warfare uh handout technique for for videos
2: yeah true that there isn't a lot of people probably don't even have dvd players anymore um yeah and then it's it's just that they've controlled the algorithm so much on these platform these big platforms and stuff and big tech has such a a a stranglehold on on that they they've it's yeah it's difficult it's difficult you know to know what the what the best strategy is now but uh maybe flyers would work with just uh you know um put the because you can get the video on all everything's on youtube just link your video to a uh one of those um what are they called? The link, the smart links, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can you can print out the smart link so people can just take a picture of it with their phone and it brings them right to the video. Oh, the Q code, the QR code, QR
0: code, QR I code. code. yeah. yeah. You
2: that maybe, yes. um, you know, there's other way, there's there's ways now, you know. So
1: mm-hmm.
2: oh, technology, great idea. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, and the QR code would go to our website where all you the should, evidence is. You
2: should make QR code stickers and sell them by the box of thousands. You know, I, I would buy, <laughs> oh. I would, I would buy like twelve boxes, and I would stick them on every
1: universe. Guys, box. we're coming up with something great. Um, <laughs> uh, and and we put a label on so the people know Absolutely. what they might be going to, or shall we just leave the label off? And the oh QR code, I I've got to see what that is. Right, Gail, What do you think?
0: I don't know. I mean, if I if I saw a sticker or something with a QR code on it with no explanation, I probably wouldn't bother. But that's just me. (laughs) My curiosity
1: wouldn't be quite that strong. How about my smiling face?
2: Yeah, no, yeah. that won't work either, will it? Your face, or you could put false labels, <laughs> yes.
0: oh, put yeah. what false, labels. A false, false label, label <laughs> yeah, make them think
2: it's like the new Kim Kardashian video or something. Oh, oh, um, oh, oh, oh. oh yeah, because then they're gonna want
0: to see it. You just have to come up with something uh, like a little grabber, you know, something to get All right, their attention. Let's
1: wanna, work on that, you guys. Now, you want a, a particular <laughs> job today. Can you tell our audience what you're gonna be doing?
0: Yes, I will be taking questions, and as I explained a little bit earlier, you want to go to the comment section under the video and put your questions in there because on the platforms that we're streaming to, the Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn, um, it'll come up in the comment section, and then I copy and paste it over to our private chat, and then I ask our guests your questions.
1: Yeah, how about that? So mm-hmm. we'll let you go do that. Any other Smiling thoughts for Just us before we let li-
0: keep all your questions and comments nice or you'll get blocked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay. Do it right. And we'll see you, Gail. Uh back uh when we're complete with Jeremy and the questions are at hand and we've got work for him to do, the real work answering questions.
3: Yes. All right.
1: All right. Thanks so much. See you then. There she goes. All right, Jeremy. Now I understand you've got something special to present to us today are you ready hopefully uh there's
2: <laughs> a lot of there's a lot of connections and a lot of crossbacks so i, I i've got the order
1: down pretty good
2: now hey. So this you know,
1: all
2: is, right you know, well let's
1: talk about this nine go back look yeah. at this title you guys 9-11 inside yeah. out tell us about this title first of all um I came up with
2: that uh, a couple of years back on, on, on when I was working on my third version of the the film um incorporating a lot of this evidence together I cut out left left some of the stuff on the cutting room floor cuz I deemed it you know either just not not core or not like as you know important to the the overall picture here and um you know I think I've got it down to um I think I've got it down to the, uh, the the proper skeleton now for for what should be have been the body of an investigation carried out by the 9/11 Commission or a, a similarly body if it were competent to do so um, and were properly directed and funded, uh, nice. you know. So I started with the you know, in, in investigation of the science. Cause I was a scientist and I was looking at the collapse of the buildings and, and some of the anomalies and, and I helped with a lot of the, you know, drawing awareness to, to this kind of stuff early on. And, um, and, uh, you know, I've followed it, followed it pretty consistently throughout the developments, you know, with the, the, the release of the first uh, world trade center reports. And, the, and then the one on the, that, that followed a couple of years later on building seven and, the models did not explain the entire collapse. They explained, you know, the initiation of a failure point, but they didn't explain, you know, the, the free fall, the, the um, free fall acceleration or the, and, and their model did not look anything like reality or what was actually observed. So they also um, ignored key evidence. That John Gross was, um, who's in, in this video, um, I think that was made, uh made famous i forget the guy that 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 filmed that video but um it was made famous a couple years back during a he, he had done a presentation and, and during the q a uh someone had confronted him and asked him about the molten steel he claimed it did not exist he said he'd never seen such a thing you know i was out in the scrapyards i worked on it firsthand and, and never seen it no eyewitnesses reported it uh in fact you know i have videos of uh numerous eyewitnesses reporting this. Um,
1: should I play the video? Oh, sure. This is very, very good. If you've got that, um, and you can put it on the same screen you're sharing, that would be fantastic. I see. It. While you're doing that, there we go. You shared your computer audio, too, right, Jeremy? I want to make sure our listeners are hearing this. Actually, I'm hearing it, so you did. We're good. Sorry.
2: Is that too loud? No, that's good. This is the original audio. There's a lot going on that day. But this video, you can see some uh, molten metal that's dripping from the the southeast corner of Tower uh, 2. This is uh, the North Tower. The one in the back is the, the South Tower. And the South Tower was hit second but fell first. And uh, you can see this metal continue to pour out up until the moment of uh, collapse of the building. And this is what origi- initially caught my attention and uh, the attention of uh, a number of other researchers who are investigating this this whole thermite hypothesis. Yeah, and this
1: is uh, white white, hot, and yellow uh uh and then the lit, building with molten metal uh that uh that right we before were. the building fell yeah niss says this is aluminum but aluminum doesn't glow right yeah in daylight conditions. it
2: didn't it didn't match aluminum i knew that it, 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 it just the official story did not make sense the debunking things that i was reading were just written by people that didn't weren't taking the science seriously or trying to you know goad the reader into reaching a certain conclusion without fully understanding um, the technicalities involved. This there was evidence of an um, appendix C of the FEMA report. There was the last fire that was extinguished at Ground Zero wasn't ex- by the FDNY. Ex- literally, didn't leave the site until December nineteenth, two thousand one. They were fighting fires underground for th- for three whole months. I have uh I have a video compilation of all the um firefighters and, and uh reports, you know, they were talking about it melting the boots. Um they had bought uh two thousand gallons of this stuff called Pyrocool F-E-F, which uh, mixes at about point zero four percent with water. and uh, so and they bought two thousand gallons of this stuff, so that makes about um I think half a million or to a million gallons, uh, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. I, I, it's been a while since I did the calculation. But it, it's it's an awful lot of um, fire-retardant liquid that they just drenched and hosed the site down with for months, um, and it's still fires burned underground. So this whole excuse that Jonathan Gross gives and the whole attitude that NIST has taken towards uh, the investigation is just... A, Contrary to what Firewise science professors who examined the steel said, like Dr. Jonathan Barnett, who wrote the uh, Appendix C of the FEMA report, uh, which contains that evidence for the molten steel. If people want to look that up, it's an Appendix C of the FEMA report. So there's there's that evidence um, that was just ignored. So I started looking into this you know, NIST more deeply and, and the science and the scientists and engineers who wrote this report, you know, so if they're engaged in a cover up and they're lying, you know, there's gotta be some motivation or something behind this. And it turns out that a, a lot of the um, majority of the NIST report was written by SAIC uh, scientists, you know, scientists who, who, who kind of work for um, both companies and SAIC is, um, it's a scientific defense contractor it um it also assisted assisted with the 1993 world trade center bombing investigation and its present day is called Lidos corporation uh it, it recently it was bought out or changed its name um
1: so there's a whole set of uh, investigations here let's hear about this guy
2: yeah so Dwayne andrews is uh is a, is a person of interest he had expert knowledge of the vulnerabilities of the u.s defense and information systems at the time when many of those systems failed catastrophically he knew how to exploit weaknesses in the telecommunications and electronic systems of the u.s defense department and he had a history of being closely aligned with the activities of dick cheney and donald rumsfeld for the 20 years prior to 9-11 he considered dick cheney his personal hero and was a protege of dick cheney's and um
1: Wow. So he, hopefully not too many people that fall into that category.
2: Yeah. Well, anyways, he, um, he worked for, uh, he started at, at, um, SAIC in 1993, just before in September uh, of 1993, just before the, um, just before the 93 world trade center bombing. Um, actually, no, it wasn't September. Uh, it was in 93, but it was right before the 93, uh, And he worked until 2006 at SAIC Mm -hmm. as a, as a principal uh, character. Um, So it's, it's just interesting that uh, both before and after 9-11, there's one company that um, had a greater impact than any other on counterterrorism programs in the United States. And that company was SAIC, SAIC, Benefited and profited more from the events not of 9 11 than any other scientific defense contractor, arguably, out there. Um, its chief, again, its chief operating officer was that guy, Dwayne Andrews, who's closely aligned with Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. Um, they created the national databases of the terrorists uh, that tracked and identified the terrorists, the databases that should have identified the 9 11 hijackers, but didn't. They supplied US airports with terrorism screening equipment. That should have, you know, allowed the airports to, you know, catch those box cutters before they got on the plane. Those, those, those instruments failed.
1: Or find a way to let them go on purpose surreptitiously.
2: You know, uh, that needs to be further investigated. I I don't have the evidence for all that at this time because it's, it's just such a, and then it's such a black hole because all that evidence was in um, a suitcase that was allegedly found in the dumpster at. Logan airport or in the trunk of one of the cars that they had left behind and, um, and a dumpster in Portland at the hotel, um, apparently where they recovered some of the, this evidence from, but where that evidence is today, it's, 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 we'll get into, we'll get into more of that because it gets into the, uh, there's some links here, um, that we'll get into in a second. Um, They helped create the official count for what happened both in 93 at the World Trade Center and after 9-11. And they were a leader on um, research in thermitic materials as well. SAIC did some of um, the investigations into different types of thermites. They did a lot of research into that, in fact. Um, So they wrote the majority of this NIST report. And it turns out that they're... Vice president right now is this guy named uh, Barry W. McDaniel. Although he, he was listed as the vice president until I started posting about this on the internet a couple, um, like a month or so ago. And he's since, I think, stepped down, he removed his profile picture from his LinkedIn page. He used to have it up there. Good thing. I saved it. And um, he uh, also... He's he, he, he seems he he's he's stepped down publicly some somewhat within the company and, and um and then he changed this on his it says lios Corporation instead of Lidos. Oh he, it's missing the D. It's um cool. I don't, typo or something, but um yeah, anyways, you can go I have uh it's Barry W McDaniel um of Lidos, and you could probably you can still find his LinkedIn page until uh you know it's it's changed a little bit, but we can read about this guy but he was the former the uh former
1: corp- COO of Securicom Stratisec.
2: Yeah, so he you, went he, You can
1: explain that.
2: How do you explain that yeah. SAC, which turned into Lydos Corporation their vice president is the guy who ran security at the World Trade Center. This very small company. It's a very small world to, to have someone like that go from, you know, running security at the buildings um, they were in charge of electronic security, which was cameras and, and badging and, and um, you know, the swipe card access, access control. And um, he was the corporate operating officer. This guy, Wirt Dexter Walker, was the CEO, and we don't have any pictures of him. It was, <laughs> it was really hard for me to get this picture of Barry McDaniel. For a, for a while, we had the picture of this other Barry McDaniel. It was the wrong guy. And we were showing that for years until wow. uh, we found out that this is the real guy. And we found his real picture because uh, he jumped around to a couple other companies afterwards. Um, this guy worked with um, this guy, Barry McDaniels, an interesting character. He has a, he has a background in, in us material army Corps of engineers. Uh, I think no, it, no, it was logistics. He, he's, he's a, he was a lo- big logistics guy and he worked in black programs, uh, apparently because he, he came with uh he was a former employee of Frank Carlucci's with BDM International, which was this, uh, we'll get into that. I think I have a slide on B, on BDM and Frank Carlucci and all that stuff. I, sh- I should somewhere, unless it all disappeared. A couple of these slides were missing, so I, I had to go back and get them, but um, I don't know what happened to them. They just inexplicably disappeared from the... But anyways, this guy is an interesting character with uh, with the, his connections to the Car- Carlisle Group, Frank Carlucci, and, and BDM International and and, and stuff. But um, Marvin Bush was actually on the board of directors for Securicom. A lot of people don't know that, but the you know, the president's brother was on the board of directors for the, the World Trade Center Security Company.
1: Fascinating.
2: And also, uh, Securicom Stratisec had some other uh, contracts such as the contract at dulles international airport for and, and a contract with united airlines so um they also had contracts at los alamos labs during the time that nanothermite was developed there so there's another connection there that needs to be investigated as well
1: uh, operating security um, over there at uh los at alamos. los
2: alamos yeah hmm. well, for, for just a short time on, on a couple short, small projects that was in one of them. Hmm. And, um, this whole thing on, uh, there's a whole, uh, video by, uh, uh, James Colbert of the Colbert report called front companies that talk about these, uh, these kinds of organizations and stuff, a lot of interesting, um, Corbett. overlaps. So, so the, James the air Corbett. airline, the air, yeah, James Corbett. Yeah. um, and the um, there's a lot of interesting things with the with the security. So the airline security thing was what took me for a loop because I'm like, wow, they, they ran security at the World Trade Center. How weird is that? But then it's like, no, they also ran security at Dulles and United Airlines. So they they could have. There's some discrepancy about whether they ran the security at the terminals in Logan, you know so
1: there's a discrepancy you mean there's a possibility that they there's also a possibility
2: were- that that secure also might have handled united airlines uh security terminals or, or had some access to that in in uh in logan as well uh, to, to get so all the points where the the planes were you know the lapses in security happened that there's there's fingerprints on apparently and um it led me to investigate some more into the security of, uh, at the airports themselves. And, uh, I found this company called vidient, uh, which was Richard Clark, Richard Pearl, Michael Sheehan, and this guy, Paul Condon, Lord, Paul Condon, it's a British uh, security company, Securicor. He, he became well. He became a director at this British security company, Securicor. It's now called G4S. Three months later, in December 2000, Securicor comp- bought a company called Argonbright, which ran security on 9/11 at Dulles and Newark airports, where Flight 77 and Flight 93 respectively took off that day. Argonbright also managed some perhaps unrelated security checkpoints at Logan Airport in Boston and um
1: where that, the two other nine eleven planes, planes, took, planes off. took off oh my god
2: yeah so there's some interesting you know connections with, with a company that you know the guy is connected to richard clark and richard pearl you know these are bush administration insiders and and, and guys who are pretty much who obstructed the investigation into nine eleven later um It's kind of suspicious. So the year before 9-11, Corps was allowing criminals to operate security, and three of its executives pleaded guilty to conspiracy. And prior to 9-11, Argenbright pled guilty to falsifying employee records so that could hire those convicted of drug possession and assault.
1: Why would they want to hire people like that? Oh, because they needed particular people in there, and they happened to have had drug possession and assault records?
2: That might've been it. That, okay. that sounds like a very, uh, very real possibility. The other possibility is that they needed people that were cutouts, um, you know, cut a out, cutout. Uh, so they needed somebody who was, they had something over them or, you know, expendable people, you know what I mean? Interesting. They might've even hired, you know, people that had drug problems so that they know that they, they could overdose them and they'd, they'd be dead, you know, and, and no one would bat an eye. Wow. You know, so this, this think you think about, it, you gotta, you gotta, when you're dealing with intelligence, you have to like, oh, think of all these things and investigations. Yeah. This is what investigators should have looked into. This is what the, the job that the FBI should have done. And we'll get into, you know, who was in charge and, and why that didn't happen.
1: Yeah, And then um, the 9-11 commission as well uh, neglected these kinds of things.
2: Yes. So they didn't, didn't even investigate none of the, none of the um, security companies were even mentioned in, in the official report uh, in the 9-11 commission didn't even mention building seven, didn't even mention um, the security companies, anything.
1: So yeah, they didn't mention the, de- the demolition of building seven, but they did mention it in passing. Yeah. in passing, Reference yeah. to the third worst structural failure in modern history.
2: I know it's, it's insane. Um, it turns out that there was some uh, post 9 eleven uh, pre 9 eleven insider trading uh, starting you know on the couple day the week before 9 eleven there were really high put options um, about double the average over double the average rate and um, someone was betting on United Airlines and American Airlines and a couple other stocks inside the World Trade Center they were betting on them to fall and these Stocks were purchased through A.B. Brown, which was formerly headed by the Buzzy Kroengard, who was number three in the CIA at the time. Uh, and it turns out that the stocks were actually purchased by Wirt Walker and his wife.
1: Oh, really? I didn't know that.
2: It was covered up uh, and, wow. and it hasn't been talked about. But that's, that's apparently who at A.B. Brown, because there was a couple of these people that were linked to this, this, this firm that bought the that purchased the stocks and apparently it was uh it was wert walker that did it and uh oh. that's 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 an
1: interesting connection oh, take us back uh because the 9-11 commission talked about the insider trading uh tell us what they concluded so they
2: concluded that it was what, what what did they conclude again? Did they? Are there some some fishy? Oh, I'll answer, tell you what right? I
1: remember. Uh, they they said, well, we followed these leads and they didn't lead to Osama bin Laden or any of his crew, so we didn't fo- have to follow it any further. <laughs> oh yes,
2: yes, that's, that's what they said. They for, they followed the lead, but it didn't it lead. It led to people with no ties to terrorism. So. Yes,
1: yes, yes. So there you go. <clears throat> okay, yeah. so just so, uh, shall we? Follow the leads to the real so, terrorists, perhaps. So though.
2: terrorism, okay. yes. Yeah, so and no ties to terrorism. So we followed this lead a little bit further because we can't find a picture of where He came from a bunch of these other companies like Glorforgan and uh, in, uh, Inman, Imhoff, uh, Inman, Inman, Inman Imhoff or something corporation. And these look like CIA front companies. Uh, it doesn't look like he's he's done anything but run CIA front companies. And he comes from a family that, um, you know, were skull and bones, Yale, his, uh, his father and grandfather were, I, I don't, he went to a different college apparently, but, um, we have his, you know, pictures of his family and stuff. Uh, but he, he, his family was famous for working with, uh, Russell and company which what, Russell and company is actually what founded skull and bones. So they yeah. were, um, it was, uh, it was, he was what Russell, I guess Russell was one of the guys that helped found it, but Russell and company was um, connected to the uh, opium wars. They were one of the biggest opium smugglers in the U S and uh, abroad. And they were basically controlling drug trade, drug traffickers. Um, and it's known that, you know, the banks uh, like Wachovia has been caught uh, and they, they just pay a small fine and um, they continue to launder billions and in, in drug money, maybe pay like a, a 50 million dollar fine when they get caught. It's like a, a small slap on the wrist. Um, so they continue to do this every year. There's there's no hiding it. It every once in a while it gets caught and they they, they don't talk about it much. But billions in drug money are laundered through the banks every year in uh, this recurring cycle that's, that's sort of been happening for decades, decades, if not a cent more than a century going, if we we believe uh, we can believe all the stuff about the opium wars and, and, and that, but it's also interesting that in 2000, the Taliban banned opium poppy growing and cut the uh, production down to zero. So that was a, motivation to um invade afghanistan which it's always been a question about you know why did we go into afghanistan when we didn't even find bin laden there we said we were going we were going to hunt for bin laden in afghanistan but you know we didn't actually find him there and we went and fought a, a, a big long war there and had all these targets and stuff but you know was it really for You know, it was to oust the Taliban, you know, because obviously, you know, the Taliban were hiding bin Laden, according to them. But what if there was other motivations? What if it was for, you know, control of the opium fields and, you know, to make sure that that 90 percent of the world's opium supply that Afghanistan provides um, was left untouched and could continue to uh, feed those markets? So that's a, uh, that's a point that was brought up by a number of researchers, including um, Michael Rupert, who was a former LAPD narcotics detective turned uh, con- conspiracy investigator or CIA conspiracy investigator, drug conspiracies, mainly.
1: This is really important because otherwise, what, 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 what reason would there be to invade Afghanistan? I mean, other than Osama bin Laden, who was a CIA asset, um, we have, we have now uh, a primary reason. Did, did you do also do some research into the the gas pipelines that were slated to
4: were negotiated yes. with?
2: There was the- gas pipelines. Also, the oil. There was also a lot of mineral wealth. Um, Afghanistan is one of the only um, natural sources in, of lithium in the world, oh. um, along with Bolivia their their lithium uh, mines are hard to come by but apparently afghanistan's got a lot of mineral wealth as well which uh you know could have been a you know a factor in some of that um but again it's it's uh it's it's hard to say and it's it's never been properly investigated and um jules kroll though uh we'll get into the i want to get into kroll next because there's um there was another company that was hired as a risk consult, a risk consulting business that started in 1972. Uh, in fact, Jules Kroll um, is credited as founding the modern corporate investigations industry. So he ran corporate investigations, um, including, uh, you know, he was actually hired to invest, help out, uh, look at, into BCCI uh, during the BCCI scandal. And, um, BCCI scandal I think is an important part of 9-11 and really connecting the dots back to a lot of these uh these players because people that were involved in BCCI uh later figured prominently in in roles in within the this 9-11 uh puzzle if if you if you go back over it and BCCI was this this bank of credit and commerce international and it apparently was this Pakistani bank that all the terrorists used and and stuff. But in reality, it was, it was a CIA creation. It was, um, a series of, a series of front company, uh, fake banks and financial institutions and this web of, uh, complexity and overlapping, you know, run, run back loops. And, uh, that would basically transfer this money all over the world. Um, so many places and so many times that it would, it would make it, you know, it would take you forever to to trace to trace the money anywhere and, and get it back. And um they were able to, you know, hide massive amounts of money this way and and use it to fund all kinds of covert operations, including the funding of the the funding of Al Qaeda, the funding and the training of Al Qaeda, um, which was the Mujahideen army in Afghanistan during the 1980s. We we had trained these freedom fighters to fight the, to fight the, the Soviets apparently our enemies and the the Russians. Um, but we had basically given guns and training and computers and ammunition to, uh, Al Qaeda. (laughs) We, we created them back in the eighties and it was under this whole, uh, the money system that funded it all and was over. It was this BCCI thing. And they did a whole investigation into it. And, and, um, Jules Kroll was one of the guys that, you know, got, got in on that. Um, Jerry Hauer was hired by um, not by Jules Kroll, but uh, he was hired I forget who, who exactly hired him. It's it's in it's in the it's in the notes and which I'll show you later. But Jerome Hauer um, was uh, office of he, he was a former office of Emergen, emergency management director uh, for New York city, right. under Rudy Giuliani and he worked for Kroll associates. Um, the office of emergency management was, um, on floor, I think, 28 or 32, 23, oh, 23, sorry, 23, 32, th- 23, sorry. This is 23 floor 23 on, um, of the, uh, of building seven. And Jerry Howard uh, was basically in charge of that office. Left it, um, empty that day, but the, the uh, construction of the OEM, um, does definitely represents a time window when that building could have been rigged. Uh, Because I've always wondered, you know, when when did they rig the buildings and how did they rig the buildings? We'll get into that in a little bit. But um, Jerry Howard is an interesting guy because he's he's the guy that. You know, he was interviewed about the World Trade Center and and talked about the lapses in security uh, on the news, and he's the one that assured, you know, he was asked questions about how the buildings came down and he he knew before. Any of the engineers had, you know, the, this was before the Byzant report was uh, written, before any of the, the official um, engineers had taken a, 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 an honest opinion on this. He was an expert on this and, and gave the whole conclusion that fires had, you know, weakened the steel and and, and that, the, you know, the, the jet fuel was so hot that it it caused the buildings to come down. And he was, he was the one, you know, right off the rip. Um you know, ensuring that story and giving that story to the press and, and solidifying that as the official story. So, you know, he's definitely someone to, 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 that should, that should be um, questioned a little further. He also became a a member of the Bush administration a couple months after 9-11 when he was hired to head the national Institute of health and he managed the NIH response to the anthrax attacks, which, um, again, we now know that those anthrax attacks were uh, perpetrated by, you know, it was weapons-grade anthrax that came from a bioweapons lab and could only have been leaked by an insider. And even according to official steer, they, they blamed they blamed some guy named Stephen Hatfill. And um, there's a whole documentary called American Anthrax if people want to get into the anthrax attacks. Again, I don't have time to to go hash that all out right now on this presentation, but Basically, Tom Daschle—he was the Senate Majority Leader—and he was calling for an investigation. He wanted, you know, a full-scale investigation with subpoena power, and he wanted all that opened up right away to, to look into 9-11. And his office got targeted. Seven people died in the in the in the attacks overall, and uh, another twenty-something were injured. But it was Senator Tom Daschle and Tom Brokaw um, and Senator Liehe the guys that both the senators that were calling for an, an investigation and independent commission to investigate the attacks. And sure enough, they backed off and the nine 11 commission was delayed for over a year. It didn't start until 441 days after the attacks. It took them 441 days after nine 11 to start an investigation. And by that time, most of the, most of the key evidence had already been hauled away and destroyed.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but wait, going back to, uh, Jerome Hauer, you may not have known that this character signed the petition at AE Nine Eleven truth for a new investigation. And we were shocked. Uh, we consulted ourselves about it and said, what the heck do we do? Cause he's very suspicious as you pointed out. And so I called him and we, uh, uh some somewhere we have a recording of this call actually but he says uh yeah i don't know about the twin towers but uh building 7 sure looked like a controlled demolition well we we asked him well, you, you 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 were responsible for finding locating the OEM in that building he actually denied that at the time uh and uh and we talked to him about giving cipro to uh cheney uh and and yeah and, company and he denied that and we're we did not want to put his name on our petition because we don't know didn't know what his motivation was and couldn't figure it out wow
2: yeah he's uh he's definitely an interesting character but that that interview has never been posted huh
1: no i I, i'm ready to record Publicly show that recording if I can find it. I mean, that was, uh, that Definitely was in 2008 that or 9 <laughs> or 10.
2: Oh, I want to see that. That's incredible. <laughs>
1: yeah. <That's> gotta <laughs> dig curious. that
2: one up, Richard. Um, yeah, that's, that's incredible. It'll be great. We got to track, it'd be great if we could track these. Some of these guys are, are still around. Um, we could track them down and, and interview them. Um, Kroll was known as the CIA of Wall Street and, uh, Jerome Howard was responsible for hiring John P. O'Neill to become head of security on 9/11 as well, and John O'Neill was the world's leading FBI investigator. I mean, he was he was a former FBI investigator. He had he had been assigned to the World Trade Center bombing case in, in 1993 uh, to investigate the World Trade Center bombing, and that's when he became interested in Al Qaeda and these terrorist groups and the network of Osama bin Laden. And so he was perhaps the most qualified person in the world to go on television and, and speak about Osama bin Laden, whether he was capable of, of coordinating right. this and, and the investigation and everything. Um, but he didn't make it to the news that day. They, he was last seen um, heading into South Ta- the South Tower to try to evacuate it. And uh, they found his body... Um, a couple days after nine eleven and the in the rubble pile
1: so so he he was not resident in the towers when the planes hit
2: he had started his first day on the job was nine eleven he had just been hired and his first day on the job as head of security was on 9 eleven and he was there at the he was last seen you know, Heading towards the South tower, and he's actually seen on one of the videos in the law lo- in the in the lobby of the North Tower evacuating people
1: because huh. uh that's interesting, so he might have had a stroke of luck even if he was planted there uh to be one of the victims um he apparently made it out and unfortunately back in uh so uh oh there there is some suspicion uh, as to his um the the finding of his body and, and and the 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 uh the injuries sustained uh i can't i don't have the great memory of this uh but uh we we, we should uh i'll find that out Does yeah that make sense to you
2: yeah, I heard something about that too, but it was found outside the towers, um, near nearby. Um, but yeah, they, they, there's some suspicion about about that as well, and and righteously, right, rightfully so. So um, again, I don't know too much, and I, I and I want, would rather leave that in the hands of more competent investigators than than me. I'm just you know going on what I what I've read and what I've been able to put together.
1: And there's a movie called Who that. Killed... Oh, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> Who
2: Killed about. John O'Neill. Yeah, that was one of the early films on 9-11, and it goes into all this crawl and, and all these, this network of you know spooks and operatives and, and stuff like that. Um, John O'Neill would have been the guy to go on and, and tell us you know, who was responsible for this. He, would have been, he, he should have been on, on television that morning. This is who went on the television that morning instead and gave us the first official pronouncement of what had happened on 9-11. And um, let's play that interview real quick. Can we, we, I'd like to play the whole thing so people can hear it.
3: number yeah. of groups who could be responsible for something. We want to turn now to, uh, to a guest who is joining us in the studio. Uh, it's Paul Bremer. I want to make sure I'm getting your name right. Because I'm just meeting you thanks, just at thanks, this moment. Sir. You're a, you're a terrorism expert,
4: counterterrorism, uh, I hope.
3: and 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 can talk to us a little bit about about uh, who who could. I mean, there are a limited number yeah. of groups who could be responsible for something of this magnitude. Yes, this correct? is a
4: very well planned, very well coordinated attack, which suggests it's very well organized centrally, and there are only three or four candidates in the world, really, who could have conducted this attack. Bin Laden comes to mind right away, Mr. Bremer. Indeed, he certainly does. Bin Laden was involved in the first attack on the World Trade Center, which had as its intention doing exactly what happened here, which was to collapse both towers. He certainly has to be a prime suspect. But there are others in the Middle East, and uh, there are at least two states, Iran and Iraq, which should at least remain on the list of potential suspects. What
3: what kind of coordination would, I mean, how how could something like this be put together?
4: Well, you'd have to have, uh, first of all, you've got to find some people who are willing to die, which is not that easy. And then, of course, they have to find ways around what we thought was pretty good security at our airports. We haven't had a hijacking in a long time, let alone four. Um, So there had to have been some very good coordination there. Um, There has to have been coordination in the whole planning of the attack. People, if they were not Americans, had to get visas to get into the United States. They needed false identities probably to buy airplane tickets they needed uh, cars to get to the airport i mean there there's a whole lot of stuff that had to happen here with no, with good well
3: with, with as many resources as as our government and and our allies' uh, governments around the world devote to to studying terrorism and, and knowing what's going on and what they're planning You have to wonder how something of this Uh, magnitude, how this could take place without any warning or any hint that it was coming.
4: First of all, the intelligence against terrorists is the hardest intelligence there is to gather. Mm -hmm. Basically, you have to have a spy in the terrorist group who's willing to talk to you for whatever reason. It's the hardest intelligence there is. The the National Commission on Terrorism, which I chaired last year, made as our key recommendation a much more vigorous effort to try to get terrorist spies uh, as, as informing on their colleagues to us every time there's a major terrorist attack it is automatically of course an intelligence failure that's by definition but i'm sympathetic to the problem about how you get good intelligence on these people it's not easy there is an intelligence failure here there is a massive security failure where we have four airplanes being hijacked in the same morning two from dulles airport it appears uh, so there's a lot of lessons that are going to have to be learned but first we've got to find out who did it mr bremm I, I want to speak to that for a second when the Oklahoma City incident occurred, the immediate response from a lot of people.
1: Uh, you're on mute, Jeremy.
2: So he got that wrong. I don't think there was two planes hijacked out of Dulles, but um he 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 there's some key things. He he chaired this National Commission on Terrorism. He points the finger at, you know, possibly Iraq and Iran, and and then towards the end. Towards the end here, he, he says, you know,
4: Pearl Harbor. Harbor happened a month before I was born. Pearl Harbor. I hear my parents talk about that as a seminal event in their lives all the time. I am not aware of anything like this in the United States before. Americans are now, I think it's fair to say, really scared. Uh, should should we be? This is a day well,
3: that will change our lives, isn't it?
4: it? It is a day that will change our lives. It's a day when the war that the terrorists declared on the United States and after all, they did declare war on us uh, has been brought home to the United States in a much more dramatic way than we've seen before. So it will change our lives. Um, I do think it's important. And I'm sure the president and his his colleagues when they start talking about this, it's important to hit some balance. The American way of life is not threatened by these people unless we threaten it ourselves. If we start throwing away, throwing away the, uh, the democratic freedoms and the civil liberties that um, that are at the heart of our society, that's what they're, they're after. And that's what we can't allow to have happen. And we've got to go about our business. People have got to move move around. I've, I was uh, uh, diverted on a plane this morning. I was trying to get to New York and wound up in Baltimore. And I, I in a way, was sort of at least relieved to see business as usual going on among people. We, we, we have to go on with our lives. It's not to say we don't take it seriously. We take it very seriously. But it's not something where we can all jump in a foxhole somewhere and hope the world doesn't come and bother us. We we have to find a balanced response, one that makes it absolutely clear as the president said this morning that we're not going to tolerate this act of war. This will have consequences for the people who did it. Very, I hope very severe consequences. I hope mm-hmm. the most severe military response we can come up with. But we also have it to remember is. that we've got a way of
1: <laughs> military response.
4: An this is not an existential threat to the United States. All okay. right. Paul Bremer.
2: Thank- so yeah, he he it's it's strange that we, we find L. Paul Bremer going and giving us the official story of what happened that day on um, the first person to point the finger at Osama bin Laden because um, Paul Bremer had an office right in the impact zone of the North Tower right on the 90, 90 near the 93rd floor where flight AA 11 impacted the North Tower uh, that was right near Marshall McLennan's secure computer room. And, um, Paul Bremer later became the Iraq occupation governor. He was later, you know, the, the point man in Iraq and, and, and led the Iraq war. Yeah. But so, Marsh
1: March McLennan was, um, was pretty wiped out by the, 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 uh, collapse, if you will.
2: Yeah, they were they're. I mean, they were a big component of the world trade center there and uh they were they lost a uh, a number of in, their employees and uh i guess I think hundreds hundreds yeah and i think afterwards uh they've f- they formed a division called marsh crisis and um and bremer headed marsh crisis up until i think 2002 2003 when we invaded iraq when he he left there to um spearhead the iraqi invasion
1: so now he also said uh that the that o- osama bin laden had involvement in the 93 bombing i was unaware of that do you know about that i don't so, think it's true actually um but he it, threw it out it,
2: there. he threw it out there i i i'm pretty sure that the investigation into um The investigations that I've seen done, the later ones that people have gone back and and, and released the declassified tapes and stuff show that it was that the Ramsey Yousef or uh, wasn't he an FBI informant and that the he thought that he was bringing he was doing an FBI drill and that that the van was full of uh, mock explosives as part of a drill and that they had given him real explosives instead. There
1: there was an FBI informant, but it, it wasn't him.
2: No, yeah. So, the whole 93 World Trade Center uh, bombing is definitely um, definitely something. Yeah, I get. I have a another slide on that in a little bit. I think Paul Bremer, though, I want to get. I want to talk a little bit um, more about his some of his interesting connections. So, there were a, a number of fireproofing upgrades in the towers on the floors. You know, that were owned by these companies, and. The fireproofing upgrades included um, the spray on fireproofing called Interchar, which was developed by uh, Exo Nobel or International Paint Company, which Bremer happened to sit on the board of directors of.
1: Huh. he's on the board of directors of a paint company.
2: That's curious. Yeah. And this kind of company, he was also connected to this Komatsu dresser mining division for a while he headed which was a demolition company so that's another interesting connection that Bremer has um, which makes him you know a little bit more of a suspect here's the actual documents on the fireproofing upgrades that performed in the towers abatement of asbestos containing fireproof material from the elevator shafts was ongoing expected to take you know millions of dollars in, in a number of years um they were world trade center alterations on, on these floors. And, yeah. um, these are the time f- frames and, uh, in years, you know, starting in 1988, 1988, um, going through the nineties up until, um, you know, Marsh McClennan recently there. <laughs>
1: Excuse me. So they were on floor 95, apparently, uh, Marsha McLennan, uh, which is uh, right in the middle of the the, the plane impact. It yeah, looks like. and I have um at, at the North Tower.
2: I have a whole. So this is the. We'll get into this. This is the whole blueprint, so people can go and look on who was on each floor. Oh my and, god! And dig into that deeper. Um, these are available in on PDF on nine eleven blogger. Under this link right here, and uh, hopefully you have that to share in the description because uh, I'll post it in private chat for you, and you can share that with people. But yeah. uh,
1: Gail, do you want to grab that link out of the private chat and share it on uh, on the social media so at least people can have it now who are listening, and we'll also remember to put that in the description after the show.
2: Yeah, there's large principal versions of these, you know, that go into, you know, highlight the, the real interesting connections in red and some of the other, you know, interesting connections in, in other colors. So uh, these were made by Jonathan Cole uh, based on Kevin Ryan's research. Oh. And, um, you know, FOIA requests into, you know, the World Trade Center tenants who was, you know, and the leases, you know, they went and got the leases from the World Trade Center to see who occupied what floor and and when and what kind of work they did. So that's interesting um, part of the investigation that uh, should have been done. Also, uh,
1: Scott Forbes... Hold on, let's let's go back. We can't... uh over this uh too fast i mean here we have the fireproofing upgrades at or adjacent to the floors that received the the uh the, the, that had the impact of the plane uh yeah so that's di- where that's where variation. the plane
2: impacted and it's also where the failure initiated the collapse initiated at that point at the at, at this point in the building where the plane floor 77
1: at. to 78 in, in the south tower and Floor ninety-two to one hundred, uh, right there. So, so was the question. Of course, it's implicit: is was the uh, fireproofing upgrade an undercover operation for the application of a paint uh, uh, or uh, interchar, for which Paul Bremer was sitting on the board of directors? Of was he creating something else? Was he in charge of an yeah. operation here that was used well, in the World Trade Center? These are questions. These are good questions, because if, if you were
2: going to do an operation like this, you could potentially, um, if they if they were to replace that, paint, that fireproofing stuff in the paint, right? So they just swap the paint, right? Say we swap the paint with, um, you know, a sol-, gel, a sol gel nanothermite paint on thermite, you know, basically, basically the same paint that they used on the Hindenburg, which you know the, the, caused the thermite reaction in the skin of the Hindenburg to to uh, light up. So they they knew about this kind of stuff. There's this you know the investigation into the Hindenburg, um, you know, revealed that this type of chemical reaction was occurring in in the, these types of paint layers. If if you if you know the iron the iron rusts. And creates this iron oxide, and then the aluminum, or you can use magnesium or other other elements too. So you can use lots of different oxidizers, lots of different um, burning burning metal agents that will oxidize um, with that uh, to create that reaction. There's a lot of people think it's just uh, aluminum and, and iron oxide. There's other types of thermites as well. Mm-hmm. So it could have been done that. You know, one of these companies had developed you know a way to make paint-on thermite and could have swapped this this paint in the buildings for those spray-on fireproofing, so that these workers think they're spraying on, you know, real fireproofing material, but in reality they're spraying thermite onto the beams. Wow! And if you were to if you were to do a full fireproofing upgrade on those floors, yeah. right, right on those, right on those key floors, right here. Or you know, say seventy-seven to seventy-eight. Say we painted. What if those beams were painted with thermite instead of um, instead of fireproofing material? How or the that...
1: underside of the uh, metal decking uh, above the ceiling.
2: Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. the metal decking uh, under between each floor. Yeah. What if that was painted with thermite? What do you think would be the difference? <laughs> you know, in fire performance. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, of the building and would that maybe explain the rapid
1: onset of collapse
2: a little bit for those of
1: you who don't know thermite is an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter and nanothermite uh which uh we get into in part three of our webinar uh, is a very very high-tech form of thermite which is sprayed on uh or can be it's a fluid applied
2: Well, they, you know, realize that normal fuel um, or burnable materials in powder form become explosive. So it's the same kind of concept, that when you pulverize the components to making thermite and make them really small, or nano, it's not actually nano, probably micro scale, rather.
1: But- well, actually, the components of, of nanothermite, the rhomboidal-shaped uh, iron oxide crystals, are a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair, which right, by those... definition makes them nano th- scale. So that's why they call it nanothermite. Mm. They call it superthermite uh, in, in, uh, in, in Los Alamos and Livermore, where it came from. So there's also some evidence that I found of, uh,
2: you know, Gary Corbett testified before and also Scott Forbes, who is a fiduciary trust um, senior database administrator. He testified to power downs the weekend before 9-11 where they, they shut the, they power and and evacuated the buildings, uh, which I thought was suspicious. Also there was a, a, a whole elevator modernization which would have given them unrestricted access to the, core of the building where the core columns were that's where the majority of the structure was for for these buildings for those of you not familiar with the architecture and the the engineering structure of the, of the towers there was a 6 box columns at the center of the uh, huge box columns at the center of the World Trade Center which uh housed the elevator shafts and uh, were the main support structure for the building if I'm, if I'm not wrong
1: let's with- clarify something sorry sorry to interrupt but uh, there's some things I have to to correct yes. the the elevator hoist ways uh, there there was uh there was more than 50 of them in each tower, and there they are. And so we wouldn't call those box columns, but the the uh, structural interior core columns are immediately outside all of those elevator hoistways. So such an elevator modernization could have given access to those columns to plant uh, whatever kind of incendiaries or explosives. Sorry, go ahead. There's also these these spandrels between
2: floors were like four feet um four feet high so there there's crawl space and, and all the ceilings between floors where they could have you know gotten in to place um, charges on the exterior columns as well perimeter columns as well as at the core so you had full demolition access of the to the buildings through through the elevator shafts and ace elevator company did a full modernization in the buildings and then went bankrupt about four years after 9-11 suspiciously
1: yeah well it was suspicious how they even got the contract too because otis elevator had been my mu- uh, uh, cr- m- m- doing the maintenance on these and mm-hmm. installed them originally and then they they're not the ones who do the modernization it's it's extremely unusual it. an ace elevator apparently uh, came out of nowhere to get this contract
2: yep same with the secure com stratasec it's like mm-hmm. all these people that and we're gonna trace those people back to, to again to the Iran Contra scandal and uh, and some of these other connections um, Rudy Giuliani and Bernard Carrick uh, are interesting, you know, because Rudy Giuliani, uh, it was Carrick's department that found this passport, which, you know, pointed the finger at the hijackers. It was actually used as evidence in in the court case against uh, Zacharias Moussaoui. And uh, that pristine passport allegedly came from one of the hijackers pockets, flew through the building, through the fireball and landed on the street uh, outside and and got in the hands of Carrick's department. was later arrested um, a couple of years later and charged with uh, conspiracy and fraud and a number of other charges and served some time in about, I think four or five years in federal prison uh, for charge for some charges unrelated to nine 11, but um, definitely the kind of person you, you want in, in installed in the, the as head of pol- head of the police for, um, for this type of event. And um, I want to show a video that's, that's very rare. I took, took I I can't tell you how long it took me to track this down when I originally found it, Um, but it it took me about an hour to find it again in my archives. So I want to show this because it's it's you'll never find it anymore. And this is the press conference right after the. This is the press conference right after nine eleven, where they're first asked about explosives
3: that brought the two buildings.
2: So everyone wanted to know. This is the first press conference. These are right out the rip the questions that people were asking. And uh, I, I have the whole video somewhere, but I, I clipped up these this key part because this is the first this is the first response to the question of whether bombs were used to bring the buildings down. Do
3: You know anything about the cause of the explosions that brought the two buildings down yet? Was it caused by the planes or by something else?
4: We, be, we, there we believe we believe that it was caused by the after effects of the of the planes hitting the, the, the buildings. We don't we don't know of an additional explosion after that. We, could
3: you tell us, do you expect any further attacks on New York? Is anything to indicate that there could be more bombs, more planes out there? I know originally there was a report that eight planes had been hijacked, four have only been accounted for. What about the remaining four, and is there any possibility that there could be bombs on the ground planted by... Some we have
1: no specific in- information to that effect. Do we know so anything we about the composition of that dust, that flight that's had? is there any asbestos or any hazardous material in that dust? Uh,
4: I I don't know. I don't know the answer to <laughs> that. Mr. Mayor, are you so, a the gas explosion related to this? As well, you that. there was a gas leak or possible? We don't believe that's the case. Mr. Mayor, can you tell us anything week. about uh, where the, the planes name? come from, I've, where uh, the, the, the aircraft came from? Bill Diamond r- reminds me that we've turned off the gas in the city In the city.
2: So he's there with George Pataki and Bernard Carrick's right here behind him. And uh, that was Bill Diamond that whispered in his ear that, you know, there's no gas lines and the gas is turned off. But there they are answering the questions that everyone wanted to know is what did bombs build, bring the towers down? And uh, what, is there asbestos in the dust? Is the air safe to breathe? Um. Again, Rudy Giuliani and uh, was was Trump's lawyer who was urging him that the elections were falsified. And he these are the, these two guys reappeared uh, recently and and for January 6th, that whole January 6th thing that people people don't make this connection that these two guys are pretty much res- like they should be charged for January 6th alongside all these other people. They incited half the people to be there because it was Trump's lawyer urging people that. The elections were falsified, and that Biden shouldn't be wasn't the rightful president to take office. Um, so there's a lot of you know interesting deep state connection with these two that um, you know reoccurred for that whole January 6th thing that not a lot of people have made the connection on, and especially not the QAnon people. <laughs> so, oh, there I go. Okay, shouldn't have said that word. Now we're going to get flagged. <laughs> But in any case, um, those people uh, um, who cleaned up the sites after 9-11, it was uh, AMEC and Bovis Lendlease that were the uh, AMEC construction management who was hired to clean up uh, Also, even Building 7. Building 7 was cleaned up first uh, before the Twin Towers, allegedly because they needed to get through there to get access to the site. But... um, In any case, you you saw this uh, explosive connections thing and the suspicious tenants. We've gone into that. You know, Marsha McLennan was on those floors where uh, the towers hit. And, um, you know, we dig into some of these other corporations with some interesting ties to the Bush family. Aeon Corporation and Washington Group International. Um, Mentioned some of these before, but um, Paul Bremer you know, it goes back with Henry Kissinger and, and Dick Cheney to the Ford and Nixon administrations. And, um, plus there's a bonus for anyone that can, I, I've been trying to find this guy's name and I, I had it at one point. He's like this mop tops, uh, guy. I think he's either a Senator or Congressman. Maybe I don't, I don't think he is. Cause I looked through all the senators and congressmen, and I can't figure out who this dude is, but if anyone can tell me who he is, that would be, uh, that would be super helpful. The, the, so Rumsfeld and Cheney uh, go back to this, uh, these other administrations, and they were involved in this um, little-known program called the Continuity of Government Program, which is a government conting- contingency plan. Um, government contingency planning, where they would literally sit down with like the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and have these think tanks on every possible doomsday scenario that could happen. And they dream up um, how the government would respond and how they, you know, even the president getting killed and them having to install a a temporary president or a temporary uh, leader in time, you know, and even... Even organize um a plan for if both the President and the Vice President get killed because you know, the Vice President takes over if the President gets killed, so they had plans for all these different scenarios that could possibly happen and go wrong with the United States and how they would maintain government and and have a con a, a continue- continuity of government under this whole continuity of government program and two weeks uh, like a couple days o- out of uh, every month or so um. Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld would disappear during the 1980s and they would go to Andrews Air Force Base to an underground bunker where they would take part in these, these think tanks and these, um, disaster scenario planning, you know, think tanks for the, for the, that were so secret, they couldn't even tell their wives where they were. Their wives were given a, a desk number, a government desk number in case of emergencies where they could be reached. And, um, so Obviously, they knew about you know g- hijacking planes and the dangers of you know hijacking planes. There was a this thing called the Dawson Field hijackings that happened in September of 1970. Four uh, aircraft were were hijacked. One was attempted to be hijacked, but it was foiled. And um, there was even you know members of Kroll. Uh, I think it was Brian Michael Jenkins who who predicted you know flying planes into the building and you know because. They were looking at different ways that they the buildings could be attacked. So there were obviously people that thought about you know thought about these things. And if Dick Cheney were and Donald Rumsfeld were going to these underground bunker meetings for this continuity of government program, then that was their job was to think up these disaster scenarios. And this is interesting because this whole disaster scenario plot uh, features in this this thing of um, this episode of the X Files. Um, I don't know if you. I, I should put in a slide right here for the for the X Files Lone Gunman episode. Have you got? Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, I sure did.
2: Yeah, so in the Lone Gunman episode, they talk about um, they talk about this disaster, these war game scenarios, right? And they talk about the, the scenario 12D is one of the war game scenarios. Well. <clears throat> who's to think that you know 9-11 the whole 9-11 plot wasn't thought up and dra- dreamed up during these government contingency plans um it was certainly interesting that all these war games were running on the on the day of 9-11 which confused in our air defense our radar there were hijacking exercises that were occurring simultaneously to the to the real hijackings there were um false blips being put on on, on radar by um some other, uh, you know, uh, it was a training scenario to, meant to confuse air traffic controllers to see if they could handle um, they could handle it. And uh, apparently, it was used against us by someone. Again, SAIC comes to mind for uh, who could have done that, and Dwayne Andrews who we talked about before. Those were the kind of systems, the computer systems and tracking systems that. You know, the the scientists, that company was responsible for contracting and and putting in place is that type of stuff. So these Northcom contingency plans, um, there was this emergency preparedness plan with uh, was classified plan. And. They targeted the World Trade Center, they had the World Trade Center in crosshairs and it had a picture of Osama bin Laden in the um, in the briefing, which was from September right before 9-11, it was. And it was talking about this um, unconventional threat uh, hijack scenario concept proposal that they were they were going to train and, and prepare oh, hold for. On.
1: Go back. This is dated September 10th through the 12th. Back one. Uh, yeah. Uh, 2001. So yes. is this was, foreseen uh, months this before was, 9/11, and they just happened to have that date? They were yeah they they were
2: planning these drills the Global Guardian and Vigilant Guardian these were the these were the planning things for these drills and it was the, the drills were scheduled they were running from that the, the Monday Tuesday Wednesday of that month I mean that week the week of 911 is when the drills were running or, <laughs> and they were running. controlled and the drills were running the morning of 911 so that's well, when they were scheduled the, the, the
1: Osama for. bin Laden's picture is on the drill I mean that's well before the drills were organized presumably weeks and months or months before 9-11 and they put osama bin laden's picture on him
2: yes this is and, this is and from they the,
1: have a picture in the for the drill I mean, this is amalgam weeks before 9-11 with the target on the on the tower
2: this was also in the same in the same thing in the same presentation yeah it was in the from the same presentation i what, believe when
1: was the presentation
2: I have to find these. Uh, well, these that were, date is
1: critical. Um,
2: yeah, these <laughs> that's, are, that's,
1: that's really it, important.
2: It was called Amalgam Virgo, um, and yeah, people can look this. Uh, I, I, I gotta, I, I'll have to look this up. And and I wish I was, I wish I had that a better answer for that. But I what remember it was
1: called Amalgam Virgo.
2: This was the. Um, that's the name of the file or, or whatever. That was the presentation. Um,
1: and what does that mean, amalgam Virgo?
2: It's just two code words for whatever the operation. It's a proposal
1: was. from the Defense Department. Okay. Amalgam. Yeah.
2: So it was this whole.
1: Well, and then June, uh, one to two.
2: Yeah. First uh, so that was the first one.
1: Another drill with Osama bin Laden's picture on it.
2: Yep. So there were warnings. There were, you know, in in internal defense department memos, you know, warning of this kind of stuff. You know, training exercises were being conducted f- for this exact kind of stuff the morning of nine eleven, and um, then of course, you know, Dick Cheney with the uh, the orders. Does the order still stand? What order was that? And what you know. We never got an answer for what or, what the order was. Well, you better
1: explain that. Um, Norman Mineta died the other day, so oh. he's gone. Uh, explain what you're talking about there to those who may not be yeah. familiar with the so, scenario.
2: The Transportation Secretary, Norman Mineta, testified to being in an underground bunker the day of 9-11 and under the White House with Dick Cheney, and that when he was there with D- Dick Cheney, um, they were, you know, they were begging him to be able to shoot down the plane that was about to fly into the Pentagon. I guess they had fighters on it. They they had you know, a lock on the plane. They were just waiting for the order. And. um Apparently, this young aide came up. Norman Mineta testified to seeing Dick Cheney in there the, the, looking nervous, you know, sweating his brow, drinking diet Sprite soda. And. um You know. They had um, his aide would come in and ask him if the order still stands. His aide was asking him if the order still stands, and he said, "Have you heard anything to the contrary?" Of course, the order still stands. And um, you know, he didn't. He testified to you know being aware of some that is is all he was aware of. He wasn't aware of what the actual order was that he was talking about, and and, but it was apparently you know it only makes sense in the terms of that it was a stand down order, not to shoot the plane down. And that they wanted to shoot the plane down and and uh, that Dick Cheney thereby allowed the plane to hit the Pentagon um, by, you know, issuing the standout. Or that's the that's the allegation anyway. Uh, and there's never been any kind of closure or, you know, investigation into that. That's been. You know, done thoroughly. So this is so this,
1: so this comes from uh, Norman Mineta's testimony to the nine eleven Commission. Yes, uh, which uh, uh, is a huge red flag for for everybody. Yeah, it was, and now he's gone, so we can't clarify it with him anymore. I guess.
2: Mm. There was also an August sixteenth memo uh, titled "Bin Laden Determined to Strike in the U.S." That was brought up to Condi Rice during some hearings. And then after that came out, there was a bombshell article in the New York Post uh, saying that Bush knew, you know, and uh, that was covered up. You never really heard much more about that. And um, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, so I started looking in more into d- deeper into Donald Rumsfeld. He he has some interesting he ran some company that made aspartame and then, you know, got the FDA approval for aspartame uh, while he was in office so that he could, his, his, the company that he worked for could sell aspartame and not, uh, even though it's like a not neurotoxin or something. And there's some, um, but the interesting thing on his resume was that he was the chairman of Solomon Smith Barney International Advisory Board. And that was right before he joined the Bush administration. He was apparently working there. And he was one of the board of directors at ABB, um, which is not AB Brown. That's a different uh, company and a Tribune company and Rand Corporation. But this um, this Solomon Smith Barney Internet, you know, what is this Solomon Smith Barney? You know, it turns out that Solomon Smith Barney was the number one tenant inside World Trade Center seven. They owned eighty-five percent of World Trade Center Seven, and Dick Cheney worked for them. Have you ever heard
1: this before? No, that's new to me.
2: Yeah, so it turns out that uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld were both sat on this board together. They—it's not only was it on Donald Rumsfeld's resume, but it's on—it's on—it's on Dick Cheney's resume as well. Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld both worked for a bank solomon smith barney which which is a member of citigroup which owned 85 percent of world trade center building seven so um it was interesting that luke rudkowski had confronted uh donald rumsfeld outside a hotel i think in, in i don't know where he confronted him but he, he walked up to him with a camera and, and, a, and was talking to him and asked him if he'd ever heard of building seven before and the response is, is is just uncanny. He gets so nervous, he gets he he says I got to go, you know, he's like he said like, no building 7, what's that? I'd never heard of that before and then he said I got to go. Um there's a whole video of this. Um it's really quite revealing when once you realize that, you know, he was chairman of the of the Foreign Policy Advisory Board, that International Advisory Board at Solomon Smith Barney.
4: Yeah.
2: And that he worked in that building. Probably so again it's on it yeah this is um an article by andrew lind lindenauer of uh, cbs it was published december twenty eighth 2000 the rumsfeld resume and you'll you can find it all right there um now marsha McClennan back to the twin towers um and billing seven and all this because this is aig is an interesting company because jeffrey greenberg the son of maurice greenberg um was was also ceo of marsh McLennan alongside l paul bremer i guess i don't know which one which one was at the time but they were both ceos of, of the same company marsh mcclennan and it turns out that aig AIG is an interesting company with some interesting history, which I'll just take a side note to to go back on. Um, in 2000, Mark Fritz wrote an article entitled "The Secret Insurance Agent Men" for the Los Angeles Times about Cornelius Vanderstar and AIG, which was operating in China at the time, and. Um, As an insurance company, they knew which factories to burn, which bridges to blow up, which cargo ships could be sunk in good conscience. They had pothole counts for roads used for invasion, and they had head counts for the city blocks marked for incineration. They weren't just secret agents. They were secret insurance agents. These undercover underwriters gave their World War II spy masters access to a global industry that both bankrolled and ultimately helped bring down Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. So. People that don't think of insurance people as, you know, this key, uh, you know, in spies or intelligence people. But um, it turns out that, you know, that insurance companies have a lot of inside information on things that are valuable for intelligence agencies and, and uh, more people should be aware of that. Um, but there's something called reinsurance and this general recorp that was uh, linked up with AIG and there was a number of scams and um, they were sued in a number of criminal cases and fraud cases um, against AIG and, and Hank Greenberg and, and, and all these guys. Um, But it turns out that, you know, they, AIG were insuring a lot of the people in the world trade centers and uh, a lot of the companies had insurance from AIG, but AIG did is they used these reinsurance scams to, Reinsure those policies to uh, other companies, that so that other companies would take the financial hit um, for these for these uh, for this bad insurance policies that they would know were going to go bad. If if they if, if basically if AIG had inside access and information to 9/11 be- and foreknowledge beforehand, they would have known that all these you know if they they insured Marsha McLennan, and they insured all these companies inside the World Trade Centers, they know that their company is going to just go under if, if if you know nine once nine eleven happens they would have had to know right so they could have taken action to re and what they could have done and what it looks like they did is that they sold all those insurance policies through reinsurance programs to other um insurers so that those insurance companies would take the hit for the insurance rather than uh, aig itself so definitely some really scammy um stuff that should be more thoroughly investigated there's also
1: uh wait and then uh, aig was one of the ones that uh, we bailed out because they're too big to fail in the 2008 scandal
2: absolutely yes another key connection because so so we bailed them out anyways so um and they got caught with all kinds of fraud, and they opened up fraud cases after that. These fraud cases, uh, most of these articles are from like 2012, 2013 is when they really started getting it stuck to them. Um, but anyways, yeah, there's also, an, everyone knows, has probably heard of Larry Silverstein, the leaseholder of the World Trade Center, and his insurance policies that he collected double on uh, when the Twin Towers were, were destroyed. Um, he, he collected twice the insurance policy that he had on, on the World Trade Center and um and got rid of all that asbestos without having to pay you know we knew that there was tons of asbestos in the towers and that it was going to cost millions and millions to uh remove billions. that all yeah. built probably billion it was yeah. billion estimated at billions right yeah. Yeah. I have the contract somewhere but um another interesting guy uh was Dov Zakine, the Pentagon's comptroller number three in charge at the, at the Pentagon that morning and Dov uh, was the CEO of this Systems Planning Corporation company, which is super interesting. They, this was from their website. It says they do homeland security, intelligence, and advanced concepts, advanced technology, information solutions group, signatures, and electronic warfare, radar physics, communication networks, tri data, and uh, and. And it turns out that TriData was um, a division, one of their divisions of, of Systems Planning Corporation, and that TriData Corporation did the um, did the ninety three World Trade Center bombing investigation. They Systems Planning Corporation, uh, TriData Spec wrote the wrote the investigational report on on the uh, on the ninety three World Trade Center bombing, but they also wrote the engineering reports they got access to all the blueprints for the buildings after the 93 world trade center bombing. And they, they were able to write the uh, recommendations and, and, and and manage and help manage the reconstruction of the, uh, the floors that were damaged from the 93 world trade center bombing. So super interesting connection. When you look at this, um, the flight termination systems also that uh, were developed by systems planning corporation and, I'm sure you got, if those of you who didn't catch Aiden Monahan's uh, presentation from yesterday should absolutely go back and, um, and watch that because he goes into way more detail about these systems, how they work and that they were actually installed on the planes that were, um, the, the flights that were hijacked on 9-11.
1: Yeah. And that, uh, interview podcast was uh is available on our website richardgage911.org so it turns out that these um this radar
2: physics laboratory had a number of people that were um working for for this um to develop these systems that could that were in, that were actually designed so that if they had a hijacking, they could actually hack the cockpit and take control of the plane and and lock the hijackers out, so it was actually an anti hijack system that was you know supposedly meant to to um prevent hijackings um but in the wrong hands, of course, it could create hijackings even when there was none uh so I thought that that was uh that was super interesting this uh tri data and the, and the fact that s p c um, worked with SAIC to do that investigation on, cool. in 93 and that they got access to the World Trade Center blueprints, which would have obviously been helpful if they were planning for, for anyone who want, wanted to plan a demolition of the buildings yeah. would have to know that that those engineering details. So they had they were the ones who had the access. Surprisingly, now at the Pentagon. Um, in addition to, you know, Dov Zakheim here and, and Donald Rumsfeld, there's this guy, Peter Jansen, who is a friend and a really close business associate, again, of Donald Rumsfeld's. And Peter Jansen ran AMEC Corporation, which AMEC had the contract with this $258 million refurbishment of Wedge One of the Pentagon, which is exactly where Flight America, you know, Flight 77 allegedly struck the building. Right. So yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy that the, the one wing that they were re they were re renovating this whole wing, they had taken the paneling off. They had put in this blast resistant uh, siding on, they had redone the windows with three M bulletproof glass. So all the windows had been redone with uh three M bulletproof glass and all the inside of the, um, all the inside structure of the, of the um, brick facade the the outside the outside wall essentially the uh cinder block wall that was behind the the facade um in the building was was reinforced with with Linex um spray coating so uh, there's there's some videos on it that show like what happens with Linex um blast resistant coatings so they spray this it's it's actually like truck bed liner but when you you can spray it on concrete um on a cinder block wall and it and it makes it like the wall um like there's there's videos on getting shot with a rpg they shoot they shoot an RPG at the wall and they show like how putting a line X on it makes it um blast resistant but this is this is some of the renovations that were done in being just being completed actually in uh, the Pentagon that morning in fact these emergency trucks this is where you can see the Pentagon roof line still intact it collapsed uh, uh, a few hours in after the plane um, allegedly struck there but right out here in front you can um, I, you can see there's these uh, spools of uh, wire laying out there and there's a chain link fence going up the perimeter here there's a trailer here looks like a, a cargo truck um, tractor trailer and there's a bunch of there's a work trailer, a contractor trailer and uh, another work building makeshift out here, all right here with the parking lot. And, the, and this is parking for and this was all AMEC control. This was all AMEC employees that were um, working here and finishing up this refurbishment and, and finishing up the work um, on that wing of the Pentagon when it was allegedly hit. So it's certainly interesting. Um that amec has these that amec was also hired to clean up the world trade center after 9 11 and building seven and that they were there present before during and after at the pentagon
1: yeah um
2: and what's even more fascinating is that um that there was, an, the, the, it gets, it gets crazier with my, with my Pentagon research, because I, I don't focus on the whether or not the plane hit the building. I think that's a waste of time compared to all this other stuff, because these are, these are real connections. These these are real details. Um, n- did you know that no AMEC employees were killed?
1: Oh, that's lucky. Because they're so, in the building working on it. When they they were
2: in it. the building working, you know, completing refurbishments, but they were just out, outside having a coffee when the, this all happened. Wow. Apparently. So um, you know, it's kind of it's it's remarkable. Uh
1: now I wanna I wanna advise you, Jeremy, that uh we do have a number of questions that are people wanna ask, and we're we we've got about twenty minutes left. So however you want okay. to
2: I'll try to blast through these sides. So it turns out the pilot for um, uh, United Airlines, um, I mean, American Airlines Flight 77, the pilot was an author of this kill, mass casualty exercise from the Pentagon in October 2000, where they simulated a plane crashing into the Pentagon. And he was one of the authors of this. There were two different um, Maskell, uh simulations that were done. Um, simulating, you know, flight uh, flight impacts of the Pentagon and, and Charles, Captain Charles Burlingame, uh, the captain of the plane, this big guy, Matt, he was a he was a huge guy, very really athletic. He lifted weights. And we're supposed to believe that these these five little um who were the smallest of the hijackers were on board that plane, we're supposed to believe that they um wrestled control of this aircraft from him and another co pilot in in under in under three minutes. Is what it took, according to the flight um, data uh, recordings and the pilot, re- uh, the cockpit re- pit recording before the transponder was shut off. Um, but this radar physics laboratory, there were a number of these. Uh, there was a navy physicist. There's a number of people on board Flight 77 that were just, you know, the w- the wife of Solicitor General Barbara Olson was on that flight, and he had been going through all kinds of divorce and and, and problems with his wife. And it sounds like a, you know, a murder a, could be a murder for hire case. Like he paid someone off on the inside to put her on that plane. Oh dear. Um, There's, there's some weird allegations, uh, you know, about some of the people there, because there was a number, you know, first off flight 77 had seated 200 people, but there were only like 58 passengers on the flight. So it was about a, a fourth of the, you know, the total capacity. So it's like they loaded this thing low because they didn't want a lot of casualties. In fact, the mass casualty number that they simulated this exercise and they forecasted about three hundred and forty-one casualties, including injured, and the total number was very, very close to that. It was about three hundred and twenty or so if you counted all of it up. So they were their predictions on their their drills were almost identical to what actually happened at, at the uh, at the Pentagon. Fascinating. And, and some of these guys worked on the the radar physics laboratory for the, for the Navy or for the air force, uh, which wow. would have been the people that were, would have been connected with these types of uh, technologies and operations.
1: Um, for whatever reason, now we have 15 minutes left to answer <sighs> questions. So do we want to stop now and answer some questions that would be helpful? I think to our audience.
2: Yeah, I think we'll answer some questions again. You just go into all this stuff, the FBI, um, that Lewis Free was involved in all kinds of cover-ups from from you know his whole career and involved in all kinds of scandals. He quit about a week before 9 nine eleven and nominated Robert Mueller to head the investigation. Uh, a, a Bush insider who was you know super friendly and helped the CIA botch the BCCI investigations. If you look at uh, his history, he was involved in BCCI as well. To FBI. Um, Louis Free actually became. Uh, the FBI head of the FBI actually went and became Prince Bandar's personal attorney, which is just crazy because Prince Bandar was implicated in those 28 pages that were redacted from the nine 11 commission. They weren't allowed to look at this, but this is where the funding came from a close Bush connected, uh, friend of the, the CIA and friend of uh, the Bush family, who was a middle money man for the Saudi Royal family that funded these hijackers funded um, the people that, you know, housed and trained them. And there's some interesting connections too with James R. Bath, who who ran these companies for the Bush family, that were connecting um, all this Bin Laden family with you know business uh, business ties into the U.S. And it turns out that James Bath was the guy who uh, went AWOL from the National Guard with George W. Bush in Texas, huh. and uh, so there's a there's a connection there where where that where he met george bush from
1: and got hooked into the company apparently um, sounds like we'll have to have you back jeremy to, to finish this incredible well, opportunity course, tell us about ken lay first
2: and ron of course ken lay uh you know died awaiting trial but uh he was the head of uh he was george w bush's number one contributor on the campaign trail to the white house um and Enron funded Bush's run and Cheney's run on the White House, and then, of course, went bankrupt, and and uh, all their people, all their people, people went to jail, except uh, Cheney and you know the other guys that were involved. They, they got to go on. to Cheney run the was country. involved in Enron. Uh, I I believe that Dick Cheney and 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 no, not Dick Cheney, but George Bush. Did um, was Dick Cheney involved in Enron? I, this, I know that the, both of them had had some suspicious ties to it but it, huh? it was just again it, they were friends with ken lay but uh and okay. but again i don't know it's just the whole issue is that they enron funded their run for the white house yeah so and then they disappeared uh but anyways all the files for that went down inside world trade center seven too. so there was a en- non-investigation that was done by you know nist which i, I I think this is great that you guys are going after NIST, the lawsuit and everything. I want to talk more about that, but I don't know if we'll have time. Um, There's 9-11 misinformation that was put out. Popular Mechanics said, you know, we couldn't melt vertical steel columns with with thermite, but it turns out we found, uh, you know, them doing just that in their own magazine. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I remember that. You know, and then all these other, you know, there's 9-11 disinformation and... You know, I think the path to justice, I think what we're doing, um, pursuing these suspects, pursuing legitimate investigations, doing the science and education outreach, um, maybe not DVDs anymore because that's that's old. but the QR codes. I like that. And um, yeah, so in summary, I have, uh, you know, who could have prevented our intel services from tracking down and stopping the 9-11 hijackers who could have disabled the FAA's anti hijacking response? Who could have disabled the U.S. chain of command from responding? Who could have disabled U.S. air defenses? Who could have rigged the World Trade Centers with explosives or incendiaries prior to 9-11? Who could have coordinated the attack on the Pentagon? Who would have targeted the exact spot renovations were being completed on? And who could have ensured that no effective accountable investigation was ever conducted?
1: Oh, that's a hell of a summary, too. You got all the names there.
2: That's it. And now that's write, all it would have taken and write
1: down those names you guys. Uh, amazing. Uh Jeremy Reese, are you ready for some questions? Yes. yes. Oh my god, we got to go. do this.
0: We have a lot of questions. Oh gosh.
1: Oh yeah. Well, get, we're going to have to try to uh,
0: What? Go ahead. There's oh, an, echo. an
1: echo. How do we get I'm an echo? You got your earbuds in. I don't know.
0: No. I didn't do anything different. Oh, turn off that uh,
1: second. Um, computer. Now, although that's yeah, yeah it I turn the volume down, down, down on
0: it. it. Is that better? No, no. I, I.
1: No, no. And to, no. It, it, I'm going to no. remove no. you from the stream, no. and um, no. um let's, let's see if see that. Oh, oh, we still, we still have, have an echo, but echo but even though I removed Gail from the, from the stream. Jeremy, did you do something different?
2: You just, just, uh, uh, I just muted my mic. So, yeah, yeah, it was still
1: a problem. problem.
2: Still a problem. Um,
1: I
0: wonder where where that came from.
1: from. Maybe maybe it's not Gail.
2: I'm going to mute my screen audio.
0: (laughs) So, it wasn't me? It wasn't you. Oh, I don't hear it now.
1: Yeah, it's gone. Yeah.
2: Okay. I I muted the uh, audio on my uh, share screen.
1: Okay.
0: okay. Very good. All right. You ready for some questions? Let's go for it. Okay. What happened to the truck loaded with gold bullion that got stuck in the basement of the World Trade Center prior to its collapse? Do you know?
2: Well, I heard about that gold. Um, yeah, there was a number of uh, reports of it. And um, I remember even talking to guys who said that they weren't allowed to go down there while they were getting getting it out of there, getting rid of it. Um, I guess it was full of gold and try and got lodged in the top in the parking garage, trying to get out. And I don't know <laughs> if they were able to like get it out before, you know. And but I'm sure someone recovered it, and I, I know there was recovery operations and efforts to to recover it because they couldn't get it out in time before the towers collapsed. Um, but yeah, that that's that's interesting. One of those interesting you know, stories that just went down the rabbit hole and and you never heard about again.
1: It's yeah, if anybody, any of our listeners know more about that or there's a report or a video or something on that, we, we all need more information on that one. Gail?
0: Yes, all right. Um, does aluminum glow yellow at any temperature or conditions? We get a variety of questions here for you.
1: <laughs> I've seen too? some aluminum glowing yellow under... Uh, certain conditions certainly in the dark uh, it can it glow light bright yellow in daylight conditions uh, such as we saw pouring out of the south uh, tower i don't think so um, i i haven't seen uh, uh, anything like that have you Jeremy
2: um, you know, they were saying that you know, it was if you put carpet fibers in it and and you sprinkle some things in there, the they wall, being NIST in this case, yeah. Yeah. yeah, NIST or some of the other debunkers that have tried to tackle this. Um, but it, so far, no one's been able to you know sort of recreate what yeah. you see coming out that north tower, that, that south tower. That, well, Stephen
1: uh, Jones department. debunked that by adding. Carpet fibers and organic material to aluminum, and it didn't glow bright at all. It was that was something missed throughout. That just without any experimental data.
2: Yeah, you have a couple. Of, uh, It's cool the comments too. You you posted that another time, and I remember reading the comments on it. And there was a guy that said, you know, he had worked in as a a, a, tr- a track welder, thermite welder for train tracks for like twenty years, and he said, "There's there's no way that's anything but thermite," <laughs> you know. So I it, it's again it, there's it, they they leave so much of this open to interpretation and then uh, and then they've also used other excuses to say why there has been you know why that there might be no thermite and stuff but we found you know like one of the, one of the arguments Mick West had said was that there was no slag that, or residue, a slag that was ever found. And, uh, I did some searching and I found plenty of, uh, pieces of slag and evidence of slag and even samples of it. And, uh, uh, offered the samples up and he refused to he, he said that oh how do i know that where they even came from and and stuff and and, and literally they were taken off of world trade center memorial steel sites so, so steel that was donated to like um sites for world trade center memorials and people went over this steel and and took the samples off these sites like you can go and get your your own samples yourself and 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 i encourage these people too if if they can get access to the steel it, it, that should be done it, you know there's there was that whole you know that that kind of yeah. stuff needs to be done more so definitely Gail. hey
0: okay. what exactly was the cause molten metal what exactly was the cause molten metal was pouring out of the south tower how long does it take to heat metal before it becomes liquid well That's more of a richard question
1: i i'll 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 i'll, I'll take a stab at this we, what we know is that it can't be aluminum lead copper etc because those metals don't glow bright yellow what we know is the temperature based on the the uh the color of molten iron or steel um uh, Is bright yellow. uh, That's exceeding 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, We know that jet fuel and office fires cannot cause those kinds of temperatures. So uh, we can we know that thermite issues uh, 4,000 degree temperatures as it burns and uh, bright yellow lot bright yellow hot liquid molten iron.
0: Okay. The, Irani, the Iranian Plasco building collapse had similar molten rock material. Do you have any comments on this?
1: There's an uh, article done by uh, AE911 Truth. Uh, Ted Walter was primarily involved in it. It's exceptional. Uh, it, it's actually a booklet as well. Uh, the, the, this particular building Uh, the Plasco building in Iran uh, did indeed have evidence, lots of evidence of uh, uh, molten uh, steel or iron. So it's very suspicious, uh, especially as the firefighters were putting the building out uh, at about the time they put out, then the the building starts reacting uh, and, and collapses on them. Uh, So, uh, yeah, it reminds
2: it reminds me of the uh, HTA fire investigations reports that were uh, done by Carmen and Associates. If people want to look that up, um, there's a, there's a whole report that was written for the. Um, The government on how to investigate high temperature accelerant fires and what telltale signs to look for and there's an including a a whole list of characteristics and and uh, we've gone through that list of characteristics of high temperature accelerant fires and both that that plasco factory and uh and the world trade center exhibit every single um every single characteristic on the list
3: Hmm.
0: okay all right what were the so-called terrorist IDs made out of that survived the fires and explosive explosions, et cetera?
1: Go ahead, Jeremy. <laughs>
2: um, well, they're made out of paper and uh, laminated uh, plastic, um, so I, it's very, you know, you don't you almost think they were made out of you know something more durable than s- the steel beams, but. Uh, <laughs>
1: next question okay
0: what do you know about the use of nanothermite in enhanced blast explosives the idea behind enhanced blast explosives is to provoke an exothermic reaction between a fuel and atmospheric oxygen i don't have an answer to
1: that question
2: so if you look up uh there's a patent on actual linear linear shape charges that use thermite and it was um patented by Battelle. if you t- type in Battelle linear thermite patent you probably find it um on google uh, and there's a whole patent on this it, it turns out by Battelle, and Battelle are actually experts so their their defense uh, their defense it's a it's actually an institute it's a defense contractor institute that specializes in metallurgy they made the metal cores uh the demon core for the plutonium bomb for the los alamos um, manhattan project they've been involved with a lot of you know classified metallurgy and metals research and including um you know tank armor aircraft armor and all kinds of other stuff so the um the expertise that they would have had to um the metallurgy and uh, i think would is probably um who you're looking for what what a direction definitely worth peering down uh it's come up in my my research for who could have you know who could have manufactured the devices and what kind of devices could have been used to um demolish the world trade center and who could have made them that certainly um comes to mind because the the it's a way it's basically it, it super reacts the thermite and then it blasts the thermite at high speed through the beam And it also mixes the thermite with with uh, sulfur, which lowers the melting point of steel. So that it, so that this, uh, they've got it down to a science about how to uh, how to do it. I think they Mm -hmm. did a much better. They did. They could probably do a much better job than me and Jonathan Cole did in the backyard experiments. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Okay.
0: Why did Rudy have to turn around to check with Carrick when Rudy was asked if there were explosions? When are we going to see the recordings of the 60 plus cameras around the Pentagon? (laughs) Why?
2: Good questions. Again, Um, actually, I worked in um, electronic surveillance for a little while just to gain some experience with the trade uh, and learn a little bit more about that. You know, I did badging, access control, and also security cameras. Uh, All the old systems that were available at that time were were CCTV, and they were, um, you know, Really low grade, you know, less than four hundred, you know, four. They were less than four eighty p. Like they were really, really low grade, uh, believe it or not. You know, it, despite the fact that there were so many of these cameras, um, the camera technology twenty years ago is has it, it, it. We've come a long way uh, with the modern IP cameras and and on modern surveillance technologies. So, um, I actually had a friend of mine who removed all the cameras from Logan airport. And re- when they, when they did the upgrade at Logan airport around 2004, 2005, and they replaced all the cameras in Logan airport and actually have had some of the, um, the cameras that were in Logan airport at the terminals there just to see, like just as an, ex- they were like these little tiny plastic cameras. They were, they were junk CCT, uh, cams. So, um, there's, you know, so, so people don't understand, you know, quite how this, how, how surveillance and how that technology works. And, and then the recording and, and the data logging and keeping of that, because they can only record so much. And so that's why there's only five frames from that one camera at the Pentagon. And, you know, unfortunately that's all we have. And, and it, 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 it stinks that, you know, that there was allegedly more footage that was confiscated and destroyed and that has never seen the light of day. Yeah. Um, but i think that was done on purpose to to sort of uh, obfuscate and distract and and confuse people because it's really
1: yeah um we, we do have time for a couple more if we can give quick answers jeremy
0: okay <laughs> what what was remsfeld doing collecting bits of stuff on the lawn
1: yeah really
2: it's super interesting because you know uh not only was Rumsfeld out on the Pentagon lawn collecting debris when he should have been defending the country from attack and should have been escorted to an underground bunker because they didn't know if there was going to be more attacks or who was behind the attacks. But it, it just it was also um, George Bush was kept in a well-publicized Florida classroom and, and the entire time and his Secret Service Uh, had Carl Truscott took literally no action to protect the president, uh, from, you know, any kind of threat. So it's, it's, it just begs the, uh, question is, was he under any kind of threat or did they had to have known that, you know, it wasn't a threat or that there wasn't more attacks. They had to have known what was, you know, I mean, why, why would John Rumsfeld go out there and collect, you know, debris off the, off the lawn? Come on. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yes. where Where is the video footage that showed the big white plane leaving the scene?
2: Oh, so there's a whole mystery plane. I didn't talk about that at all, but uh, there's a whole book on that by Mark Gaffney. He's another guest. I, I really recommend you guys uh, have on. He wrote another book called.
1: Gaffney. Okay. Yeah, he wrote. We, another we got book. him scheduled. He wrote another
2: book called Black 9/11, which goes into the, You know, some people were asking questions about that as well. So definitely, mm-hmm. he would be the guy to, to get on to ask about the Hammer Fund and the whole Russian, uh, the whole Russian uh, security security stocks that were um to down the Russian economy, and they were all set to expire on September 11th and uh then it would have been investigated that it was all you know this part of this operation hammer that they had set up and so they had to destroy the stocks and the world trade they
1: were bonds weren't they jeremy
2: they're bonds yeah they bonds yeah so sorry stocks and bonds okay. yeah, the,
1: the the person to follow up with there is the, the video is 9-11 follow the trillions by james corbett
2: yes um. But yeah, the mystery plane, there was uh, an E4B, which is the controller plane, uh, which would probably run those AWACS flight termination systems that, you know, Aiden was talking about yesterday. And um, that's definitely a suspicious uh, aircraft that what what was that doing in the sky and who was on that and what were they doing? Why were all flights, other flights grounded?
0: Okay, we got time for more questions. Maybe
1: you got the best one there. (laughs)
0: I am not looking for the best one. I'm oh. reading them in the order that they were given. Oh <laughs> you my can look God. There's 10 and, more questions. Well, and there's 48 more comments that I haven't even looked at since I started <laughs> asking him yeah. questions.
1: Well, I, I'm trying to pick out, I see him here too. I'm trying to pick out the, the best ones. <laughs> and I, yeah. uh, we don't want uh, to miss the best ones, do we? Um, go ahead, Gal. What's the best one?
0: Um, I'm just going to read the next one in order if you don't come up with a better one. Why
1: was, how about that one? Uh, why was flight 93 delayed 40 minutes on takeoff when the weather was perfect on 9-11? Do you know the answer to that question?
2: Yeah, um, it's an interesting that, um, Flight 93 was, you know, left waiting on the tar- tarmac until the moment that um, UA 175 uh, impacted the north, ta- the, the south tower. That was the second plane to hit the World Trade Center, and as soon as that plane hit, it was all, it was like, all right, you're clear to go. I think there's a lot of speculation that 93 was the backup plane because they needed to hit both towers. So if one tower got one plane got intercepted or something happened, 93 was supposed supposed to be the backup plane. Plane. because uh-huh.
1: uh-huh. David uh-huh. says I believe this delay was the excuse to abandon Building Seven before the Twin Towers collapsed. What do you think about that?
2: Um, I don't know what it had to do with building seven. There's another theory that it was going to crash into building seven too. that uh-huh. was, you know, but
1: uh, poor building seven didn't have any plane to crash into it. So it had to go down on its own anyway.
2: Yeah. I don't know that that, that would have uh, changed much. Cause why would the, why would the terrorists target, uh, you know, Solomon Smith Barney and the securities and exchange commission and Enron scandal files. And, uh, <laughs> the secret service cia
1: the fbi yeah. my gosh it's like imagine. an odd
2: target well maybe they wanted i could see why they'd want to target the cia and and, and
1: them but uh the other the other targets you know i don't know they tell you what we'll do gail will scrape the questions uh from the social media and we'll email them to you and we'll post your answers on the uh in, in the uh description below the videos uh and on our website how's that Um, okay you have time to answer those off here because we gotta go
2: yeah that's fine i i we could talk for another hour or two i know
1: i'm just getting started (laughs) myself
0: well just so you know jeremy there's a lot of people are commenting just saying how much they love your work and what you're doing and what the information you're giving so yes they're not that familiar with you but they really like what you're doing So. Thank you.
1: Yay. Incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for being uh, yeah. our guest. You've been wonderful. There's a lot of new information to digest here. And of course, a whole lot of questions raised that require in each of these areas you brought to our attention, a whole new investigation. Yeah. How are we going to handle this? <laughs> <laughs> what do we do with that? You're going to go into them more and do write a book?
2: Um there is a book that is, is it goes into this uh really deep you know it's called Another 19 by Kevin Robert Ryan i mentioned in the foreword of this book as well um but this this would be the book it's already been written it just needs more uh it just needs more attention
1: more reading and we had Kevin yeah. Ryan on as our guest as well uh with particular uh attention to that book so um, but we'll have him back again. He's got a lot of different research that. Uh, that oh yeah, hey. oh yeah. Well, thank you so much. Any parting words, and where can people find out more about you and your work? Um.
2: Well, they can go to nine eleven that nine eleven inside out page on um on Facebook for my 9-11 work and, uh, you know, just look for me, Jeremy Riss RYS, uh, you know, I'm around, I, I do a lot of other stuff too. Uh, yeah. some people post in my other, my other channel and some of the other work that I'm into now, you know, I started out down that 9-11 rabbit hole and, and I've gone, I've branched out a little bit to some other, other topics and other subjects. So, uh, yeah, if you like my 9-11, uh, research and you want, want to, uh, see more of what I've dug up out of the, the, uh, the government files of, of, uh, you know, this will not make it on your nightly news. Then, uh, you know, um, please check it out. Yeah. And, and come, come, uh, look into me.
1: Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Aww, well, thank, thank you, you, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. And we appreciate it so much. And thank you, Gail. Uh, we appreciate you so much for bringing all these questions to us.
3: You're um, welcome. and we'll catch
1: up with you guys and our wonderful audience. Uh, again real soon. So we'll say goodbye
0: with this. Thank you for joining us on yet another informative and soul-stirring episode of Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed. We'll be on the air again next week with another very special guest in the 9-11 Truth Movement and beyond. Visit us at richardgage 911org where you can find our schedule, learn about the WTC evidence, and of course, sign up for our emails and support us. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.